recently watched two short films that Mikhail Chowdhury has produced. Both involve themes of relationships and isolation. During my talk with him, we discussed the challenges associated with producing films at a distance. And one of these that we discussed was actually conceived, created, and completed during the 2020 lockdown made entirely remotely. And I should add, and it doesn't suck. I've seen a lot of these made during the pandemic remote lockdown films, and they're not necessarily all that great. This one actually is. So we talk about his production process with that. He's a writer, he's a director, pretty much does it all and has a lot of information to share. We talk about film festivals and working with a PR agent. So if you want to learn about that whole from beginning to end, making a film and being successful at it, this is the guy to listen to. He's an award-winning filmmaker, an Emmy-nominated producer, and uh, just really knowledgeable, great guy to listen to. So I'm going to end it here with a quick sponsor break and then on to my talk with Mikhail Chowdhury. On the 80s and 90s Uncensored, listen to card-carrying Gen Xers, Milo and Jamie, as we banter, debate, and discuss various topics about the 80s and 90s. If you're a miserable middle-aged office worker and your life sucks and essentially you don't have anything to look forward to, at least one day a week, you have the 80s and 90s Uncensored. We try to decide if Magnum and MacGyver were in a cage match, who would walk out? We discuss if the problems between the left and the right can be attributed to those who watched Saved by the Bell and those who didn't. We have the ultimate smackdown between Voyager versus Deep Space Nine. And a lot of talk about movies and music from the era. So flash back with us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to enjoy a new episode of the 80s and 90s Uncensored every Monday. You produced and wrote one of these films that I saw, Amy Victoria, and then you produced and co-directed the other one that I saw, which is The Multi. Is that correct? Uh, well, no. So technically, I actually produced um, I produced both of them. And mm -hmm. I co-wrote um, Amy Victoria, and then I was quite heavily involved with The Multi and some other areas. But yeah, so I'm a producer on both those films, um, co-writer on Amy Victoria as well. And Amy Victoria is actually part of a short form series that I made called The Myth of Control. So I was a showrunner on that series, um, which we, we haven't released yet. We're actually talking to a few people about distribution and potentially developing it into a bigger show. Um, but that was part of it. And there was one episode that, um, well, everybody liked the episodes, but there was one episode we thought could fit as a short film. So to help promote the series and build some awareness and, and to start getting some, some attention around it, we cut, recut that episode as a short film and put that into the film festivals. Um, because, there are, I mean, there are plenty of film festivals that you can go to with web series and we may... We may well do that, but um, there's a lot more for the short film circuit. So it was a great way for us to actually build some more publicity and awareness around the series itself to highlight the work that we've done in that way. And then to also build, you know, on a, on a personal level, it's very important for all the people involved in the project to, to be able to, to be seen and to network and, and to do that. And, and that was the most effective way we thought to do that. Is the series similar subject matter as this particular film. So the film, 
Amy Victoria, and correct me if I'm summarizing it incorrectly, it follows uh, two women who are in a relationship together during COVID. So they're having to deal with the separation of the relationship. They're also uh, deaf. And so they are communicating through sign language, through their video calls as well. So there's kind of quite a few layers to it in regards to not just the isolation of the COVID isolations, the fact that they can't be together because one of their fathers is a high risk. Uh, they've also got additional communication uh, that they're dealing with. So is that kind of a reasonably decent summary of it? That is. No, it's a, it's a very good summary. Of it. Um, the, it, it's exactly right. It's essentially a deaf queer love story um, is how, it was, how we created it. Um, so the series itself was a concept that we came up with right in the, and just to give context to everyone, this was in um, April 2020 when full lockdown had just kicked off. We were all like, uh, you know, uh, bleaching our groceries as we brought them in through the door and wearing gloves around the supermarket and things. So it was kind of the peak COVID period. And uh, I had a feature film, which um, which I just had an audience um, table read for, and we had development funding and it all went on hold. And so just to keep making stuff, then I came up with the concept of shooting something and creating a series and trying to find a way to do it remotely. Um, and I had a brilliant partner for that series, uh, my fellow showrunner, Sana Sony. Sana Sony is actually in distribution. She's an executive with 1091 Pictures over in LA um, and she's fantastic. But again, she was, she was between moving between countries and didn't have any thing at the moment at the time so she came on board and we put together seven episodes we put together a series of writers people in eight countries 28 cities i think it was everything was done over video conferencing everything was done remotely nobody met in person we we managed to get from concept to locked scripts in three weeks for the whole thing which was kind of insane and then we shot it all using an iPhone, uh, my wife's iPhone, to be precise, which we, she very kindly loaned us. So we cleared, and then we sent that with a package with a couple of softbox lights, microphone, a couple of tripods, and, and a, a sort of PDF pack that we put together ourselves to show how to connect everything. Sent it to each actor in turn who agreed to, to shoot in that way. They sanitized it, shot, packed it up, put it in the boot of a, of a lift or an Uber, which then took it to their next actor who then took it out. So nobody had to see anyone in person. We created this whole thing and we did all the directing, DP, everything happened over video conferencing. So it was, it was kind of bonkers. We didn't know if it was going to work um, when we did it. Um, and it, and it did work um, mainly due to the fact that there were just so many incredible people besides me who were working on it. Um, I, I was definitely the, the weakest part of the team, I think it's fair to say, even though I came up with the idea for it, because you had these just brilliant people making it happen. So that's how that came about. So the series, you're correct, is about people in isolation because we had to have a reason for them not to be able to physically be in the same room together. But it's not actually about the pandemic. It's really about relationships. It's about dynamics. And it's following one day in the life of a group of six people, six friends, and you see them communicating together in a big Zoom call, but you also see them individually for each day and each one is having their own stuff and they cross over and intersect and the stories kind of run around. And there's also, there's a, there's a plot through it about um, the death of a recent friend and a bit of a mystery to it as well. So the Amy Victoria episode is essentially a romantic sort of comedy episode that, that was in there. Some of the episodes are a bit darker, some of them a bit lighter. Um, yeah. And that one was one that just lent itself very nicely to, to being able to recut as a standalone episode it, as a short film it obviously doesn't have as much depth as we would have done if we'd created it as a short film because there are things that happen to the characters outside of that in the series 
you don't see in that episode. But um, but yeah, I was I was very pleased with it, and and it is it was it was a great it was a really great thing to do because we we got to work with two wonderful profoundly deaf actresses, um, Stephanie Nawaris and Natasha Oferly, who both did a, an incredible job and were were really patient with us as we're finding ways to communicate over online and, and using closed captioning and things like that to, to make it happen. Yeah, that's one of the questions I want to ask you about too, because that that associated challenge of the communication aspect, not even not just the fact that you're communicating remotely, but you have that extra layer on top of that. And do you know sign language? Very badly. So at the time okay. that we did it, then so at the time that we did it, I didn't know any American sign language. Um, and neither did any of the crew, neither did the director. So we did it using Google Meet, who were the first, they were the first ones at the time to have introduced uh, live, so real-time closed captioning voice recognition. So we were able to speak onto Google Meet and the, the words would come up underneath it and do that. So that's how we communicated. And then the deaf talent on the other side communicated back um, either by where they, where they felt comfortable to use their voices. And so, so people understand some deaf people are comfortable to use their voices in some contexts and not others. And they, they some of them did, uh, or they would type things back in the chat function that we would have. And that's how we communicated. Uh, we used uh, sign language interpreters for the rehearsals just to make sure that was more fluid, but we didn't have the money frankly, to do, to do that for the yeah. actual shoot. So, um, yeah, so, so we did it. And then again, this is, this is why it's a real testament to the director, Christy Farris. Christy Farris, who's, she's an American actor. Um, she's been in lots of shows like Scrubs, Goliath, and things like that. She, she's fantastic. Uh, this was her first time directing, and um, she's a friend of mine, and, I, and she's always very supportive of my stuff, and I brought her in, and then I got her in to direct it. And so her first, her first directing job was to direct remotely, with deaf actors and do that. And she, she was just amazing in terms of what she did and the prep she did and how she pulled it off. She actually won an award in fact for a directing from, uh, from one of the film festivals. So she won best director. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, on the Google meet, did you find it reasonably accurate with the translations or mm. did you occasionally have to be like, Oh wait, that's not what I meant. Oh yeah. No, we, you do have those funny moments where, uh, where you did that. What was quite funny. We discovered um, is that if you swear, then Google Meet automatically kind of like blurred out the word, which was quite <laughs> and some child child safe. Not that we were all swearing a lot, but every now and again, someone would do it, and it would just be quite funny. So, but generally, it was it was good. In all honesty, I uh, we we were able to, to communicate very effectively using that um, to do that. It's obviously better with ASL interpreters. It's also more comfortable for the for the deaf talent and, and deaf teams if you're working with them to have that because it 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 makes better allowances for it. But um, you know one of the great things I learned about it from that, because when I did it and when I wrote it as a as a as a concept and created the story, and my co-writer on that episode and, and for the film, Hannah Harmison. Hannah Harmison is a fantastic writer. She's she's brilliant. Um, she is very connected to the deaf community. She knows ASL herself. So she was able to bring in a lot of knowledge about about that. She ran it past her community as well, her friends to to check it all work. But she um yeah she had sort of sort of gone through and and really picked out some some key some key points that we had that we could we could make work um but yeah when I, when I did it and we wrote it people were saying well how are you going to shoot it and the honest truth is and I guess if there's one lesson for, for people anyway is you, you may not know how to make something work but if you just give it a go and everybody believes in it then you're going to find a way to make it work and so you know we didn't know how we would do it but 
the tools presented themselves and the people involved just just really rallied around to it and, and got it together. And I think that's a testament to modern technology as well. I mean, say what you will about some of it, the fact that you had that translation functionality, the fact that you can shoot a film on an iPhone, uh, yeah. the, you know, the fact that you can attach, you know, sound, that kind of stuff, like all of this equipment and you just needed a couple lights, you know, the, the fact that all of that is available now that say 15, 20 years ago, there's no way you would have been able to do yeah. that. It would have been much more challenging, which I think is pretty amazing. Oh my God. You're absolutely right. I mean, you're a filmmaker, so you know, I mean, mm-hmm. back and, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to presume that you were as ancient and old as I am, but when <laughs> I was a kid, then I would have killed to have had, you know, when I was making my first film, my first feature, which was, you know, back over 15 years ago, I, I would have, yeah, we did it on Sony DX and you had to get all the boom mic and all the gear. I would have killed to have been able to have like the kind of, you know, the sort of shotgun mic that you have now, uh, which is you just order on Amazon, astonishingly. And then yeah. to, as you said, to have just your cell phone, we got Filmic Pro, put that app onto it. The Filmic Pro team, I have to say, who are, I believe they're actually based in your hometown, Seattle, I think. And, oh, they, yeah. um, and they were they were fantastically helpful with support as well. But yeah, to, to unlock that, there's no excuse now not to be able to shoot something well, to be honest, with what we have at our fingertips. I agree. And I think this is proof of that because I do see a lot of short films that come through and people are shooting, you know, shooting stuff. Oh, I shoot stuff at home. And the quality yeah. just isn't there, especially uh, on sound and lighting sometimes. And it's kind of like there's, there's no excuse anymore for not having a decent looking and sounding film. Uh, you obviously were quite lucky with this where there wasn't a lot of sound, uh, but there was sound in key areas that I think worked. And especially really, we're going to, I want to talk about one of your other films just a little bit too, called the multi in that this, uh, cause there are these moments throughout the film where there's just absolute silence so that you're really getting that effect of the, the, the deaf girl and what her life is like. And then occasionally there's some music thrown in there and occasionally a little bit of uh, dialogue, but for the most part, so much of that film, it's just absolute silence. And, and it works really well because when you do get that sound in there, it's noticeable. And it's like, and you, you're thinking, this is what this person's life is like every single day. So it's really quite amazing. Oh, thank you. No, I'm, I'm really glad I appreciate that. So, yeah, I mean, talking of the multi, so the multi is the brainchild of Natasha Ophelia, actually, the actor from, um, from Amy Victoria. So mm-hmm. Natasha and I um, sort of worked together on that, got on very well. And she, she said to me, you know, I've got this, this script that I've written, I've got a grant for it, and we're going to make that. And she's got, she had a fantastic director attached, Storm Smith, who's also a deaf black woman, um, just like Natasha. Um, and so I came on board as, as a producer for that. Um, and that one, and again, that was an interesting one because we did shoot that. We shot that in person on location, but it was in February, 2021. And that was when we had lockdown in LA County. So people were still scattered. So Storm was actually in, I believe she's in Nevada or Arizona at the time. So the director was out of state. I was in Morocco at the time for various reasons. So I had like a nine hour time difference and um, our script supervisor was in New York. So we actually ended up, and also we had to have limits on how many people were on set at the time. So we ended up with this big Zoom call with uh, two fantastic ASL interpreters, um, and then the three of us all joining by Zoom, the rest of the team, DP and everyone on set. And it was a majority deaf crew. So um, where the, most of the people were deaf, DP and Gaffer were, were both hearing. Um, and, uh, and it was, again, a real, 
Uh, just a real team effort to go and make sure that communication challenges weren't an issue to move through it. Uh, I think a lot of the I mean, one thing I will say about working with deaf talent and deaf teams is that it really is something people should be doing more of, not just with deaf people, but people who have disabilities or who are perceived to require some accommodation. Because actually the accommodations that you have to make for people is is very small. And and you're just broadening the pool of talent for that. You know, on the multi the the team who worked on the crew were were a world class bunch of professionals who work in film every day. They were fantastic. You'd be lucky to have that talent on your on your set any day of the week. So it was a real it was a really great experience to do that. But yeah, we, with the sound element to that, you're quite right. So Natasha was very because she produced, wrote, and starred in it. So she did everything in that film, um, and she did it brilliantly. She turned in what what I think is fair to say just a really stellar performance as well um, and when we got to the sound piece you're right we actually shot it without sound very deliberately um, partly because it meant we were able to not have another person on set for covid it also saved money which is never a bad thing when you're doing these, these low budget things yeah. um, but uh, but we we specifically went and had three moments that we ADR'd where we had Natasha's voice in there because it was very important to her as a deaf person that people actually recognized that she could use her voice and she heard that. Um, and then in terms of the sound profile that you talk about, and I'm really glad that it worked. To be honest, it makes me smile a lot because we spent a lot of time on that. And it's one of those little finicky things that you spend ages on. You're wondering if it makes a difference. And so we picked, um, I believe it was three or four moments in the film where the sound was of significance at an emotional level to what the character was going through at the time. So it was one point where the character who, who sort of uh, is dealing with some uh, trauma and some mental difficulties went and was sort of obsessively cleaning a spot and then used a toothbrush on it. So we had the toothbrush sound just scrubbing, coming in very silent, subtly in the back, a thing with a letter that was of significance, things like that. Um, and yeah, we did go up and down with our, sound, our great sound designer who was brilliant a couple of times to be a little bit higher, a little bit lower to try and get it just enough that you would you would hear it out of the silence, but not so much that it, it dominated. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with that. Yeah, that with, I like what you mentioned about working with uh, deaf actors or actors with other other things because it does seem like not just Hollywood. Hopefully, it seems. I mean, you're closer to Hollywood than I ever have been recently, anyways. But it seems like more and more productions are really putting an effort into making sure that they're being inclusive. So in this case, instead of just hiring uh, an actor who knows sign language, but speaks normally or something like, like actually hiring actors that are in are deaf or yeah. um, actors that are, are in a wheelchair or are actually this, uh, it, at least from what I've seen and from people I've talked to, it seems like that seems to be the case is are you seeing something similar as well? Yeah, there is. So there's a term in the in the in the disabled community, and I, I, I'm I'm not disabled, so I never claim to um, to, to speak for anybody. But yeah. there's a term called cripping up, which is essentially where actors who are able-bodied will then um, perform as disabled characters uh, and doing that. So, and this this kind of fits into part of that wider discussion, which says, well, should an actor be able to play any role, and so on and so forth. And you know, the truth is, as a bottom line, yes, actors should be able to play any role under the sun because they're acting. The difficulty is that um, disabled character, disabled actors will only ever be allowed to play disabled characters. Well, able-bodied actors are allowed to play any role at all. So, until you get parity across the board for that, then um, you don't, you you can't really. I, I think it's wrong 
to to go too far into that. So the there is a trend to it. People are doing it. It's not quite there yet. Um, and there is a nuance to it as well as to, you know, how far should one go? Um, I was watching, I don't know if you've seen, there's a TV show, uh, it was on Netflix called Titans, which is a DC superhero show. And there's a character, Barbara Gordon, who, as most people know, is Bat- Batgirl in the, in the series or in the, in the comics. Um, and Batgirl is in a wheelchair. Uh, so Barbara Gordon's in a wheelchair because she is in the comics. Um, and she was played by uh, a fantastic actor, the name I forgot, but she actually, she's not in a wheelchair, but she is an amputee. Um, and so, yes, she's not necessarily a wheelchair because she can have a prosthetic leg and do that, but she is somebody who's disabled in that area and did that. And she was a fantastic performer in, in the show and did that. I think there are, yeah, I think there is just a, it's not hard to find people with that talent. We, with Amy Victoria, sorry, with the myth of control, I should say, and Amy Victoria, we, we went and said, we've got zero budget. We're going to send an iPhone to actors to perform at their houses and we're going to do everything remotely. It was insane as a request. It was completely bonkers. Um, and we were able to find two brilliant women of color who are profoundly deaf to do it, who knocked it out of the park. And both of them, Natasha and Stephanie, are very experienced actors. You know, Natasha has been on The Politician on, on Netflix. She's been on Amazon. Um, Stephanie has been in Grimm. She's a recurring on The Good Fight. You know, these are not hobbyists. These are professional union actors who do this for a job. And it was not hard to find them at all. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I want to ask you a question about the script, actually, because there's a moment, there's actually two moments where they do, where they sign poems, Mm. but you didn't sub, so you didn't caption it. Uh, Yeah. Why? Yeah, no, it's really good. And you know what? That's actually the thing that people ask me most about, about <laughs> Victoria. And it was a very, it was a very conscious choice, but it was again, one of those, uh, as you and any other filmmaker listening now, every filmmaking is about choices. So you always go back and forth. So um, in that, so we, we wanted there to be a climax because it's a kind of a, a sort of small romantic comedy. There's a kind of climax moment and we have one of the characters um, trying to sort of profess their, their love to the other one um, from about, uh, from underneath the balcony. And the other one, it's a very Romeo and Juliet moment. I'm not going to pretend we took a, we took a classic cliched thing of, um, of a character holding up a ghetto blaster and playing music to try and show their thing. And Hannah um, chose to do it with ASL poetry. So ASL poetry or sign language poetry is uh, it's kind of akin to modern dance in a way, but using predominantly hands. So it's, it's a really beautiful form. It's a beautiful flow. When it's performed well, it's beautiful flowing kind of testaments of relationships and love or, or tragedy and whatever. Um, and it's, and it's just fantastic. So she wrote it in. We created that scene. Um, Natasha did a fantastic job of signing it. Uh, we managed to shoot it. Yeah, I, I think it's my favorite scene of the whole thing. We managed to get the light just right um, at the end of the day, and it was all, all very nice. Uh, but when we came to, to putting it on there, we actually did three different cuts of the film. One had no captioning whatsoever through the entire film. Mm-hmm. So you didn't actually have anything uh, to see what the ASL was saying. And it kind of worked on a level because you could understand what was going on because it was quite clear. At the same time, it was a little too much, a little too confusing. Then we had one where you saw everything. And I kind of felt, I think myself and Christy together uh, made the decision that we didn't need to know exactly what they were saying to each other if you are not. I mean, obviously, deaf people who know ASL can see that. But if you're not deaf, you didn't need to know that because you could feel the emotion very clearly through it. 
so we just picked that moment to to leave it silent. Um, it, I, there's there's something about film which um, you, I'm a writer, and so you always want to put more words in. You always want to explain things. You always want to have that, uh, and sometimes you just need to kind of give people a bit of space to sort of breathe on it. Uh, I want to talk uh, a little bit on the technical side of producing like mm -hmm. what goes in because you look at the credits of any film and you've got producer co-producer line producer associate producer sure. like you you've produced a few films what what is the key to being a producer like what 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 exactly do you do that makes you beneficial to getting a film completed yeah absolutely um so one thing with credit, and credits are a bit confusing because especially there are differences between film and TV. So people see different credits on different things and, and, and they all mean slightly different things. But broadly speaking, um, if you have something like a line producer or a co-producer, they are more technical roles that have particular specific jobs to them. So a line producer, for example, will, will kind of be involved, I'm going into too much detail, but it'll be involved in, in kind of structuring the day and putting piecing all the structure and scheduling and stuff together. Um, different is that associate producer is one that is a bit more of a general credit that can be given to people that have supported in some way um, and done work for it, but there's not necessarily a specific role for it, for example. And then when you see executive producer, and this is for film only I'm speaking about at this point, the executive producer, broadly speaking, they are usually people that have enabled the film in some way. Quite often they put money into the film or they brought money or sometimes they will have done, for example, attorneys who have done contract work and stuff for films will sometimes get an EP credit and things. So they, they've been involved in it at a sort of a high level to help come together, but they weren't really that involved in the physical making and development. So when you see producer, producer, on a film, that means that they have usually been involved from very early in the project through to the very bitter end of the project. And in fact, after the project, they're usually involved in the publicity, the promotion, everything else as well. Um, oftentimes, a producer will be the one that actually starts the project. So you'll see in Amy Victoria, I'm down as a producer, so is Sana, because we we were both there at the inception of the project and brought the whole thing together. Natasha is down as a producer in the multi because she was the one who created it and conceived the entire thing and helped to bring the team together. Um, I did I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I was there pretty early on. And then and then when you're a producer, your your involvement is kind of everything. You are I always sort of say you're kind of the person that sits above the fray a little bit. And you have to watch all the different department heads. You have to see all the things. You have to pull it all together. And that includes hiring people. That includes managing teams. That includes working through budgets, juggling all of that stuff. Um, and when you do it and you have a great team, then it means you have lots of really brilliant people working on things. But the classic example of the producer is every department head in film, from camera to wall, costume to, to art design, they all have their own focus and priority. They want to do the very best they can for their job. And so their only goal is to have the very best for their team and for their equipment and their tools and everything else like that. And the producer is the one that essentially has to say, no, sorry, we don't have the money because a lot of the time they have to do it. Or they'll say, I think it's really important to do this. And someone else saying it's really important to do this. The producer has to decide which one is it going to be around that. Um, so the producer kind of provides that oversight, uh, producer supports the director. Um, you know, your goal is to try to help the director get their vision out. Uh, you, you want to make sure they are supported, that you can, you can help them realize what they have tried to create and what they have come up with 
and try to make sure that happens as well. But again, sometimes you have to say no, because sorry, we don't have the money. So a lot of producers, I mean, there's a running joke about producers that essentially just saying we don't have the money is your <laughs> regular go-to for it. But yeah. Uh, and then when you're finished with it, you know, I know you mentioned about promotion of films and stuff and how, how we do that. Once you finish the film, and this is something that, that really, I think, I think a good producer, I don't, I don't claim to be a good producer, but I think good producers do is you, you're already thinking ahead of, well, how am I going to maximize the benefit of having made this film? You can, you can get your head down and get very caught up in, I've just got to make it, just get it done, just get it done, get it done and, and whatever. But if you can take a, your head up a little bit and see, well, do I want to talk to a distributor in advance? Do I want to put marketing together? Should we actually be shooting this a different way because of X is going to help us sell it? And if it's a short film where you're probably not going to make money, you want to be looking at, well, what kind of festivals can I take this to? Who can we go to? What is the timeline for it? When does the festival circuit start? What are the places to go? Um, do you want to create a buzz for it? You know, I created Instagram pages for, for, the, for both films. Um, uh, sorry, not both, but for the series and for, for the multi You know, I put together the IMDB pages so that people have a reference point to go to. Do you want to have someone there to help with all of that? So that's, that's part of it. And then, of course, you get involved in festival submissions usually. Um, and promoting like that. You hit on a key aspect, which is what happens when the film is done. Uh, people often think I need a producer to help me make the film. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, you do. But you also need a pr producer or good producers to kind of help uh, see the film from beginning to end and then past the end as well. Yep. And because you talk to like, you know, I just want to get my film done. And then, well, what are you going to do with it after your film's done? You know, okay, great. You got it. You did a film. So that that's a key, key thing. I think that I, I like that you mentioned because you worked with a PR, you're working with a PR agency on promoting this film. So uh, what, what goes into that? Like, did you, you reach out the agency and then you're like, Hey, I've got this film. I want to do this with it. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah, it's a really good point about that. So PR is interesting. I've only been working with um, with Olivia for about two months now. Um, so actually, I reached out to her not about promoting a specific film, but promoting um, the the general work that that I was doing um, and pushing that forward. Uh, it's the first time I've worked with someone. I've said she's been great. great. It's fantastic. With that, I basically put together a bio. I put together details of, of all of the the work that we have. We already have press kits. I mean, this is a note as well, actually, to anyone that's making a film. If, if you haven't done it already and you've got a short film or something, put together a press kit with nice pictures in it, nice images, a little synopsis, a director's statement, um, all that sort of detail. Because, because there are people, you know, once you... Um, well, I'm, I'm jumping back a little bit from the PR question, but just to the general point, I, I know too many people that have made great films and then sit on them because they're either a little bit afraid to put it out there uh, they're a little bit concerned or they feel it didn't quite meet up what they wanted it to or they don't know what to do with it next. Um, and the one thing I would say is it's, just put it out there. If you can get into festivals and you have the money and budget to do that, please do it. But if you don't, at least put it out there, put some materials behind it, tell people that you've made it, let it know. Because by making something, you know, I whatever the film is, however good or bad, I have tremendous respect for anyone that gets it made. Because making a film is an act of lunacy in of itself. You have to start off with this complete bank page, blank page no idea how it's actually going to look at the end. Um, and you're trying to convince people to give you money to go and do this thing. It is insane. So anyone that does it, kudos, I doff my, my cap to you and get it out there, make sure it gets seen. The PR person I, I, we found was someone who 
came through Christy, actually, the director and the actor who started using it. I said, she's very good. So yeah, I spoke to her and said, this is what I want to do. I've got these projects that are here. I'm trying to raise some profile about these projects because uh, I want to be able to sort of help them to get distribution or to secure next things from that. Um, these are the people involved. I gave profiles of all the individuals um, and I gave them a little profile of myself. And then she reached out, I believe, to you and to a few other people who, and she, well, she said to me, look, these are people I think would be suitable. And they're like sort of, they focus on filmmakers. They talk to people in this industry and I said, they seem great. And then did that and you very kindly, you know, invited me to, to come onto this. So I, I think it was 100% being worth it in terms of doing that. It was very helpful to, to, for her to do that, to get that. I, I don't think it's hard to get noticed. And, and if you're not sure or you don't have, um, it's one thing if you're an actor in some ways, because actors are a bit more high profile. So actors tend to have a more profile online. You tend to get more followers and do that. If you're a writer, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a director, if you're a producer, uh, unless you get a big break somewhere, then people don't tend to take as much notice. So you, you've got to, you do have to put yourself out there, which is awkward for me, but yeah. Well, and it makes sense, especially in this industry, because it's very competitive and mm. so many people think, oh, I'll just create something brilliant and it'll be seen. And that's not necessarily the case. So having somebody there advocating for you does help. Have you noticed a benefit then? Like, have you actually seen like, okay, it does seem like this stuff's getting noticed more now that I've been working with this person as compared to say previous projects? Yeah, I, I think it does. We had... I mean, one thing with the, with the two films I've got currently on the circuit, but there's another film that I'm also in pre-production for. Um, and there's the series, of course, that we're also sort of building publicity around uh, to go develop that. And we're talking to a few people. The reason we haven't aired that is because we're talking to a couple of um, producers and uh, streamers, in fact, about potential for development of it. So we don't want to, to stick it out there at this point. But when, you, when you're juggling all these different bits, then it's very hard to actually focus on that piece of publicity. And I have noticed we, you know, I, I don't think you and I would have been speaking um, had it not been for Olivia, not because you're not very open and not because you, I'm sure you thought that this story was worth, you know, oh, yeah. your listeners listening to, but at the same time, how would I have got that to you? Or how would you got that? You get, you're looking at hundreds of different people doing lots of different projects. It is very hard to keep that there. So I, I think it's definitely beneficial to do that. It, it's definitely helped. Um, all that said, if you, you know, if you don't have the budget for it and you can't find the right person, then um, there are lots of ways you can still do it yourself. And that is by reaching out to people, which I've done as well in other ways. Um, you know, we had, there are things that you do, you just have to, I think the best advice I would give, and I'm not an expert at this at all, uh, but I've made, I always say, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I've made lots and lots of mistakes. So I'm always happy to keep sharing the mistakes I made. Uh, and one thing is you, you, just tell anybody that you know who may be in any position connected or linked or helpful to you that you've made this thing or that you're making this thing and just tell them about it and do it. And there's nothing, you don't share it. I don't share stuff with expectation that they're going to help me or do anything, but I just let them know because there's an amazing number of people that are like, I'm really glad you told me because actually I know someone that's looking for this. We, we were lucky. I was lucky enough to have both Amy Victoria and the multi screened at the British Film Institute in London in December last year. 
It was uh, it was part of the busting the bias events that they did. They hosted a series of films with Q and A's around people in disabilities or made by people with disabilities. Um, and so we had a special screening of both films back to back. And we had a Q and A. Natasha flew in from LA for it. It was a fantastic event. We had a packed audience. Um, it was a real dream come true to have you know my work at, at the BFI. Uh, that happened because I'd reached out to people that I knew to say, look, I've made these films and I'm looking at promoting them right now. And I'm looking at this, I'm going to festivals. You know, if you happen to think of anybody or anything like that, and if you like the films, then let me know. And of course they all watched the films first to see if they they thought they were all right. And that's how it kind of developed. And they said, well, actually I know someone that is doing something connected and then it led through and the BFI sort of got wind of it. And they, they said, yeah, these look great. Could we, could we screen them? So great things can happen. Did you make good connections during the screening at the BFI in that same way? Because when it comes to film, obviously the BFI is huge. So, you know, anytime you can get a film in there, but, um, but when it comes to some film festivals, I'm a little wishy-washy. I'm like, has it really worth it to spend the money right. just to get a laurel to put on your poster kind of a thing? Uh, so, yeah, I'm laughing because yeah, you, I mean, you, you're laughing with me, so we've clearly had exactly the same thought process for, for films and film festivals. Yeah, you're right. Um, there are there are real advantages to having a good set of laurels on your on your film, um, but not all film festivals are created equal. I, I think nearly all film festivals that I've seen, of which there are many, uh, are done with the best possible intentions, and they they really do try their best to to make something worthwhile. And so it's always worth looking at those. Amy Victoria, for example, that has actually now been in, I believe it's been selected for about 23 different film festivals. It had, it's had an incredible run, to be honest. Um, and that was particularly on the LGBTQIA film festival circuit, which is a very well-trodden circuit, it's a big one. Um, we also got into an Oscar qualifying festival, the Real Sisters of the Diaspora, which is a wonderful festival. Um, and so, so it, it, it's done very, very well. All of those festivals that we got into, um, I, we, we chose selectively because although it's quite a lot, but it's a cost every time you submit to a festival. So what we didn't have was a blank check to say, we can just apply to 150 festivals and see what happens. We had to choose. So we, we picked quite carefully. We built a strategy. And in fact, for that film, we actually worked with a lady called Rebecca Louisa, who is known as the film festival doctor online. And there were a few strategists who, who have different packages that you can use to help support your film festival strategy. And none of us knew what we were doing with the film festivals. It's been many years since I've, I've done festival circuit. So a bunch of us on the film pooled our resources together and we, we hired her and a team um, and they were absolutely brilliant and well worth it. And they sort of went and said, look, I think, you know, this, this circuit is the way to go and these things. And then they also taught us how to approach people we know at other festivals and things to say, this is, this is what we've got. You know, would it be worth applying? And so that's how we kind of narrowed down the list of where we were going. We didn't get into every festival that we applied to, but we got into a really good number um, and we got into a good round. And so all the festivals we chose, they were ones where they, even if they weren't huge festivals, some of them are really big festivals, but even if they're not, they're ones that have really good uh, connections, really good uh, they, they kind of geared to help the filmmakers succeed, if that makes sense, is the best way to put it. They're ones where they try to host events to support you. And then the multi, um, we were a little more selective with the multi um, in, our, in our approach, but we actually got into slam dance. So we're actually in slam dance at the moment. So in fact, anyone, if anyone picks this up, it ends in a week, so it probably won't air in time, but um, it is available <laughs> on the slam dance channel. Um, it was selected through the Unstoppable Shorts program 
for, for that. And Slamdance, of course, is a, a mega festival, which is fantastic. It had to go online, unfortunately, this year. Um, it's also in the Toronto Black International Film Festival, it's a Canadian screen qualifier. So, um, yeah, I, I would always say it's worth applying, but do research your festivals. And you have places that will say, hey, we think you should apply to us. Take a look at them because just, just there's no point getting... 50 laurel, in my opinion, 50 laurels for the film and paying the money for all those entry fees just to have that, you're better off probably, I would say, getting trying to get 10 or 15 laurels. Um, and they're all from places where you're getting a real benefit for applying to it. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like if you're going to apply to a festival, you know, look at one that's going to give you something more than just something right. to put on your poster. Um, last question here. In regards to the films, are people going to be able to see them at some point? Because right will. now they're doing the circuit. So that, that's right. Yeah, they are right now doing the circuit. So they will be able to see them at some point. Um, we are waiting until they complete the circuit. So again, just for anyone that doesn't know, um, when you've done your film, don't post it online immediately if you're going to go to festivals, because most festivals don't want to uh, screen a film that is already freely available, purely because you know festivals survive by having people buy tickets to see their films so there needs to be some exclusivity um amy victoria is likely to conclude its festival run in the summer so that is going to be i think around june july so once that's finished we'll probably put that up online um, there is a trailer on vimeo which people can see um, and then the multi is going to conclude i suspect at the end of this year and then that will also Probably, probably be made available. I have, I'm not absolutely certain, but I suspect it will be. Uh, the one, the one countenance to that is it may be that we then are able to actually put them on a platform somewhere for a distributor to take, in which case they'll be available on that platform, but they will be more widely available. All right. Well, is there a website or social media links you want to mention that people can either follow you or the films? Yeah, please. Um, so people are welcome to follow me on Instagram at midnightcaller.com underscore, underscore, underscore. Um, or they can just look me up uh, online as Mikhail Chowdhury. Um, there aren't that many of us in the world, so it comes up pretty easily. And you can see my Instagram. That's where I post up about the, the film work that I'm doing. Um, and the multi is at, uh, at the multi underscore film at Instagram that has all the updates on there. Perfect, man. I'll, of course, throw the links in the show notes so people can click nice right on them. Kind of thank you. All right, Mikhail. Thanks a lot. That was very informative. I really appreciate no, it. No, this was a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it.